Welcome to another edition of The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current events. I'm Michael Broadcorp. And I'm Becky Scher. On this week's episode, we're breaking down the possible indictment of former President Donald Trump and the rise of Governor Tim Walz as a national political candidate. We'll break down a recent incident involving testimony by Winona LaDuke at the Minnesota legislature and what it exposes about Democrats in the Minnesota House of Representatives and the speed of the legislative process. Finally, we're going to break down the Republican messaging in opposition to free breakfast and lunch for kids at schools. We're excited this week to be joined uh, with an interview with Republican State Senator Karen Housley, who will break down developments at the Minnesota State Capitol. Becky, welcome back. Thank you. Every week, I think I, I think you're going to come to your senses and not show up, but uh, here you are once again. It's the brightest part of my week. Oh, that's so kind of you to say, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate you saying it. Uh, let's break down uh, topic one, the possible indictment of uh, Donald J. Trump. Start off the start off the week, as some may say, it's going to be a stormy week. Ooh, that's good. You know, I can't claim credit, but I'm going to take credit for that one. That's so, a good uh, line. Kicking off on Saturday, uh, former President Trump posted on the illustrious Truth Social that he expects to be arrested on Tuesday, um, like a potentially let's go as far as saying unhinged individual or elder. Um, he posted in all caps saying that uh, he he will be arrested and it will would if if this does happen um, this week, it would mark the first time in US history that former president would face criminal charges. Now this indictment would be coming from the Manhattan district. Alvin Bragg is looking into possible charges stemming from falsified business records. Uh, regarding Trump concealing his reimbursement uh, of his former lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, for an estimated $130,000 payment that Cohen made in 2016 to former to a porn star uh, about a rumored affair, Stormy Daniels. Correct. Hence your Stormy. delicious pun, <laughs> smart pun, about um, being a stormy week. That's true. No, the president denies these that this is affair ever happened. However, you know, as you mentioned, Cohen made the payments. Trump Organization allegedly reimbursed those payments. Um, and now we get a wait and see, huh? Yes. And so the the question becomes number one, does he get indicted this week? And Trump was the one who said and he went went out there and set the marker that it was going to be on Tuesday. I I don't know. There hasn't been any confirmation that he's going to be indicted this week. There's been some news that law enforcement agencies have been coordinating a potential, how would they process, book Trump, arraign him if he is charged, uh, number one. And, and then, but there's been no specific, uh, specific date offered as to when it would happen. So Trump is kind of leading the charge, which I think is somewhat smart on his part because he gets to go out there and he gets to make himself the martyr, the victim. Correct. In this process. And so I guess we're on official indictment watch. Right. I mean, and, and you've worked in communications and politics. I mean, the best thing you can ever do is define yourself before others can define you. Um, so, you know, being the master communicator that we know that the president is, he is doing just that. He is going out and saying this is politically motivated, that he is being charged inappropriately, um, that they're going to handcuff him, which is yet to be determined, obviously. Um, and we now just, 
he gets to fundraise off this. He gets to build his sympathy. Sympathy. He has, um, you know, I, in one article I read, it, it said um, that he has basically uh, put a litmus test out there, right? You can either defend me or you're a leftist sympathizer. Correct. Um, I gave an interview to Politico over the weekend where I described uh, former President Trump as the new Teflon president, taking a moniker away from Ronald Reagan. And I said that uh, he is someone who has built his entire political empire on being the victim all the time and being the martyr. And this is just another example. Um, I also said to Politico, which which wasn't quoted, um, but that we should set aside any misconception or belief that he's not the de facto head of the party. If you and, and I mean, he's obviously running for running again for another term. Um, so he's by all accounts and by all accurate de descriptions, he's leading in the polls for the nomination. Um, but what's interesting is when this news started to come out prior to Trump making the announcement and then afterwards when it did, he made the announcement. Everyone seemed to take a, a lot of deference to him. No one on the Republican side really came out and said, which I think would be the reasonable thing to say, which is that, you know, he's innocent until proven guilty. We have to let the charges and the process play out. No one even was that fair. They went above and beyond to call this a, in essence, if I'm grouping all the statements together, a bit of a partisan witch hunt. Uh, they sympathized with the, pre the former president's plight. What it shows to me is that he is the head of the party. He is the front runner for the nomination, and no one wants to cross him and be disloyal, even in the uh, this this criminal process, which, if it starts, will be the start of one potential indictment that may come, um, but it will be a huge problem for the Republican Party uh, and will also be a problem for the party because I think, and I'd be curious to get your take on this, but the, the general point of this article for political that I was quoted on uh, is that this will be a boost to his chances in getting the nomination. Your take on that particular point? Um, I absolutely believe that it would be a boost. You know, this is something we've we've talked about time and time again. That you know, folks want a fighter. They want somebody who's going to stand up to to the left, to the media, to these witch hunts. And and not only is he Trump saying, "Yes, I will stand up and I will fight," but I am the target of this. I am with you if you have been targeted. If you have been, you know, whatever it may be. If you've been fired. If you've been criticized on social media for your political viewpoints. I am with you. I am one of you. Um, and it's one of the biggest things that I believe that he has successfully marketed himself to be. You would agree, though, that in a normal political environment, a candidate being indicted is not a positive. Should be completely disqualifying. But now, again, I like, you know, I like to play my devil's advocate here. Let's say, let's let's flip this around. Let's say it was our beloved Ronald Reagan. Let's you put aside what the actual facts of these cases are. Let's say it was Ronald Reagan that was right now, you know, just we we were getting was potentially being indicted. That would be a witch hunt. We would we would be sitting here and saying a Democrat, you know, district attorney is is coming against the president. I don't know about that. You don't know. Uh, you know, there's a there. I mean, I think that Trump is so warped. The, the, the entrance of Trump's into the political atmosphere has so warped, I think, people's minds that I, I don't know that we would be taking that approach. Um, Got to remember something. Nixon resigned. Uh, Nixon was aware of the, the, the political peril that he was in and also the legal peril that he was in, and he resigned. Um, and so I think that the president has, 
is in an incredibly unique position, which is why I, I said he's a new Teflon president because nothing seems to stick to him. And in a normal world, in a normal environment, um, if we were sitting across from a legislative candidate or candidate for city council, uh, and they were facing a potential criminal indictment, we would be saying, you can't run, you can't do that. It would be a distraction, it'd be a problem. That would be reasonable sage advice. If Nikki Haley was facing a criminal indictment, if Ron DeSantis was facing a criminal indictment, um, it would be problematic. But for some reason, the rules don't apply to Trump and it doesn't hurt him as much as it realistically should. Completely agree. Now, two, two questions. First being, if he is indicted with just a misdemeanor, a misdemeanor, no, I'm not going to say just a misdemeanor. That is breaking the law, sure. But if it's if he is indicted under a misdemeanor versus a felony, does that change things for you? No. Okay. I mean, a misdemeanor, I mean, because in, in terms of what does it change what? In terms of what he should do? How you view him if he, if he is rightly being indicted or if he's targeted. I think that this is the beginning of the potential for three to four Many. buckets that could happen. Right. Um, I, I agree with some legal scholars on TV over the weekend who made some claims that they thought this was the weakest legally, the weakest kind of legal argument to be made. We'll see what the district attorney comes out with. Um, if he does something this week or in the coming weeks, um, I think we're, we've agreed to do some more re reporting on this and, and do a, do some more discussion on this. But I think any type of indictment towards the president, misdemeanor or felony, is serious. Because, you know, to answer your point more directly, if this is a misdemeanor to begin with, it's not as if that ends his legal trouble. Because I think we, I think, are subscribed to the school of thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's more trouble coming. And so if this was just an indictment, um, I, I wonder what he, how he, I think he could probably navigate it. I think it's still a little, I think it's certainly bizarre that he could. But when you're talking about the potential a year from now of looking at multiple indictments, uh, potentially for multiple felonies, if that's how this plays out, to think that he could still run um, is ridiculous. And to think that we live in the political universe where it's actually going to benefit him. I mean, it's a pretty wide consensus amongst critics and those who support him that this is going to benefit him. And that's what's so sad about this. That is what is truly so sad. I mean, to that point, we, um, you know, it's not overly surprising, but a little bit so much so. Um, McCarthy came out saying it's the weakest case he's ever seen. I was disappointed by his statement. I, w I was a little surprised he came out this early. I think it's one that if I was working in an office, let's wait and see and then, you know, have a comment when there's a comment to be needed. Um, one that I was surprised about, um, Chris Nunu, who has made his view on Trump very, you know, potential candidate for president himself has said that he believes that we need to move on for Trump. He has said that he's been talking to some folks over the weekend and he said, I had coffee this morning with some folks and none of them were big Trump supporters, but they all said they felt like he was being attacked. And that is where you you really lose the folks, right? We know we have the mega folks who are our diehards that are going to be with him regardless of, of what it happens. But you've got those other individuals who who are the reasonable, you know, uh, folks that are, I wouldn't necessarily put in the mega lane, but put on the Republican side. And, you know, I think that is a, a telling comment itself. He does have uh, multiple political lives, um, whether he's a Teflon president or he's a, in a cat, like in that sense. I will be, it will be interesting to see, again, as some legal scholars have said that this is the, this potentially could be the weakest legal case against him. Nonetheless, it would be, if it's accurate, an, an indictment by a grand jury, 
if that's what we're to believe right now. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But again, I wonder what those people would say if we're dealing a year from now and polling shows this, that polling shows that a Republican candidate could potentially beat Joe Biden. And you have, in essence, uh, uh, still a Donald Trump in the race, still leading the nomination, but facing multiple criminal indictments. I think uh, my hope would be that the the activists inside the party, although I don't have a lot of faith that they would, would recognize that he would face some substantive hurdles and handicaps in the general election, and that nominating someone um, who isn't imperiled in legal entanglements would be a better choice. But we'll see. Now, I know this is not going to be the first nor last time we, we discuss this. So I want to, you know, leave us some time to discuss it a little bit more in the future. I have one question and one comment. First question, should he be indicted? Do you believe handcuffs are warranted? I believe that uh, it is incredibly important that the message be conveyed in the United States that no one is above the law. And he should be processed and booked like any other defendant would be. He should be given the the presumption of innocence because he is presumed he's innocent until until guilty. Uh, he should be afforded every allowance under the law under the law, but he should be granted no special favors. And this leads me to my last comment, um, which I think will be a good topic for a future podcast, um, is about his opponents, so his potential Republican opponents. Um, DeSantis had a press conference this week. He said um, something that I expect. Or, would expect as messaging from the Trump camp almost itself. If you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction and he chooses to go back many, many years um, to try to use something about a porn star hush money payments, you know that's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the offense. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. That's from DeSantis. It's a, it's a good messaging point. It's a great messaging point, And I'm for, a little shocked that it didn't come from Trump. It's a good messaging point for Republicans who are, and who are Republican candidates, their supporters who are seeking the nomination. Turn to the crime. Yes, turn to the crime. That's a good messaging point. I, I you know, I, I think it's, I think it's going to be sad and bad for the party, uh, long term. If it's Trump, I think that a number of these candidates, privately, would like to see him exit the stage, uh, but they, but they just simply can't come to that point. And so, this is a subject we'll break down again many more times down the road. Great. Breakdown number topic number two, and I and I know you've just been waiting to bring this up since we've discussed it. The rise of Governor Tim Walls as a national political candidate. I'm going to let you just set the table. Your guy. Let's just start right there. Your guy, Governor Walls. What started this discussion? So there was a Daily Beast article um, in the last couple of days saying that, you know, if if there's going to be an alternative, you know, Democrats have an alternate to Joe Biden if they want to find somebody who could be the next DeSantis from the from the left, that is Governor Tim Walls. Your thoughts? I mean, come my on. hope is that by having you speak, <laughs> it runs out the clock so you don't get your opportunities to to let me to, to come back. But go ahead. So I mean, I want to lay out one one line from this article that to me made me roll my eyes all the way into the back of my head. Walls spoke of his state in much of the same tone as DeSantis does Florida. Both men also often speak of rights and freedom, though DeSantis means just for some people, whereas Walls means for all. What do you want me to say? Is there a question in there? I mean, okay, so I do. Here, here I do have some questions. Let's start with, how does Team Klobuchar feel about the Walls rise? Well, a couple, I can't speak to that. Um, I think it's probably awkward. But Minnesota has a rich history 
of multiple candidates uh, challenging each other on the Democratic side. I mean, we had, this is a state that had uh, Eugene McCarthy and, and Hubert Humphrey, uh, both vying for the presidential nomination at various points. Uh, we're used to this type of dynamic. It's it's a big state, and and uh, I, I can see that I, I do, you know, I, I don't know how serious Wall's running himself or, I mean, I, I don't see a scenario, and I spoke to some Democrats over the weekend who, who kind of agreed with me that they don't see a scenario by which Walls potentially gets in the race for president and runs runs on his on his own. That being said, now or ever, uh, probably uh, they didn't see that as a likely scenario. And I'm not saying that he doesn't have the the pedigree or the record in which to do it. What is, I think, a viable option, and I think, is one of the the, the basis of the article is is should. Joe Biden not run again. Should there be should Kamala Harris or someone else rise? Is is Walls a good running mate? And and on paper, there's absolutely no reason to think, just judging it from a political standpoint, that he would not be a viable running mate on the Democratic side in running for president. Um, there's a case to be made for him to run on president on his own. I just don't know if he's going to do it. Um, the re, I think, and I think one of the challenges is is that Walls has come from I would consider to be a more moderate side of the party. He his success, I think, that he's had in office is because of the fusion of himself with the Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan, who in in, in number of ways is much more progressive on issues than he is. Um, Walls has done nothing in being in office, I think, to moderate or to control or rein in the progressive agenda. And so he hasn't been an obstacle. And so his bona fides in running uh, in terms of supporting a progressive agenda on the Democrat side are quite good. So I actually have some questions with you about Fire the exact away. same thing because I believe that um, the 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 Tim Walls that we saw in Congress, the Tim Walls we saw in the campaign trail leading up to his first term, and and largely on his in his first term, um, was a vastly different Tim Walls than we are seeing in the first three months of this legislative session. Now you endorsed Tim Walls, correct? Let's let's get you know let's do a tally him. mark of how many times I can say that. I endorsed him when he was running against Scott Jensen. Correct, and. So, so I have a couple questions. Here. Go ahead. Starting with, did you think? Do your thoughts on endorsing him change now that there's a DFL trifecta? When you maybe endorsed him with the thought or understanding that there was likely going to be a Republican backstop? I stand by my endorsement. Okay. Um, do you believe that because of the trifecta, we are seeing a more progressive walls, or or was it along the way him just kind of stifling his pro- progressive accolades? I think the fact that there is. DFL one party control at the legislature is providing massive opportunities for Democrats and their progressive agenda. And but is think, that walls driven or is he along for the ride? I, I think it's a I think it's both. I mean, I think that if there was something that he was actually opposed to, I think he would speak up on. But but this is this legislation is passing. He is signing it. He is embracing it. He has a check in the balance of what's coming through the legislature. He's not exercising it. Um I mean he's not taking He's not, and I'm rephrase it, he's not stopping it from proceeding, which he has that right to do. Not to say that he's not exercising it, he is, but he's just, he's not proactively stopping it. Um, it's, and, and many of these, these events and things that are, are passing, they're being celebrated uh, on, on the Democratic side, and he's standing along with it. So I think that, that had there been a Republican legislature, I think that that would have moderated the Republicans. I think Republicans would have moderated Walls. I think that had, uh, there been a Republican legislature and 
a DFL governor in Walls, that would have moderated the Republicans. That's just the balance of things. When there's one party control, uh, in in you're seeing Minnesotans are seeing what can happen in that scenario, which is that uh, the one political party can get their punch list filled really quick. So a couple of the things that they've gotten done already, um, uh, approval of felon votings, abortion rights, um, undocumented driver's license, executive order, gender-affirming care. Are any of those or any other policies that he's either championed or expected to sign and champion before the end of the session surprised you as um, something that you might have thought before this legislative session was uh, a little on the progressive side for the governor? One of the things that surprised me about the exit of Governor Mark Dayton from the governor's office was the number of Democrats that I had heard from who were frustrated that the progressive agenda had not been advanced farther. I would say to you that I think Governor Mark Dayton is more liberal than Governor Governor Walz. I, I think that Governor Dayton is, uh, was a much more pragmatic as to what he could get accomplished. And I think what you're, what's, what the governor, uh, Walls is taking advantage of, rightfully so, because election have consequences. Is that he he is comfortable with the legislative leadership in pursuing the agenda that they that they have uh, to the victor go the spoils. Um, the Democrats are passing legislation with great speed, with great passion. I'm not surprised at how far they're going. Um, what because I think it backs up some of the criticism, some of the pent up frustration that I think a number of Democrats had about the the, the Dayton administration, which I'm just passing along. I'm, I'm not sharing that those, whether they were right or wrong, but those existed. And I think that the Democrats uh, are proceeding accordingly based on the election results. And, and, and the reality is, is that this is what happens when there's one party control. Um, they're moving faster than I thought. That's the one thing I will say. They're moving at a clip that's much faster than I thought. Um, and, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but it's just it's proceeding at, at a faster clip. Um, and, and and this is a subject I want to come back to on, a, on an episode, a future episode down the road, if you decide to show back up, uh, is is are are the Democrats, by what they've carved out, are they actually helping Republicans out long term? Um, is, it a, is a discussion I want to have, but but keep going on the subject. I'm sure, I, you, I just have I'm one, sure you have more bullets bullets in the gun for I me. I just have one more for you. So that first quote I mentioned um, talked about uh, rights and freedoms and, and classifies Walls as for all. Now, Walls also, his you know infamous or famous um, tagline is, you know, one Minnesota. Do you believe, even with these being, I would say, you know, I might disagree a little bit, I believe that this is a more progressive Walls than I expected that I believe he is personally comfortable with, but who knows? You know, it's just, you know, yes, that's I, where I stand. So do you believe what is being passed, what is going to be his legacy, should this be his last and final term, um, does that represent one Minnesota, or is that one progressive, one DFL Minnesota? I think that it's fair to say that Minnesotans put the Democrats in charge. Uh, absent any polling, and not to say that it doesn't exist, do I think there's some opportunities for, do I think there would have been some opportunities for Republicans had they uh, gained more seats to 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 moderate some of this stuff? Absolutely. Uh, there's no question I think I do, I do, but there is right now no polling to represent that anything that's been passed right now is out of line with what Minnesotans want or expect to have done. Uh, how, the governor's not up for, you know, three, three plus years. House Democrats are up in 2024. 
they will be the first ones to in the majority between the House and the Senate and the governor to determine as to whether they went through whether they went too far or not on some of this agenda item stuff. I will say this: if you're just looking at it on paper, the governor is 58 years old, only 58. Uh, he was elected in 2006, beat a Republican incumbent in a bad year for Republicans, but he still won. And he won that he was elected to six terms in Congress in a district that Republicans should have been able to hold. Tim Walz has a proven track record in swing districts of winning. And what he, has an, what he has accomplished from an electoral standpoint in this state is absolutely impressive and should, would be attractive to any, I think, national ticket looking at the state. Now, obviously, you raised a point about the, the existence of Senator Klobuchar here. Um, but the, the reality is that Tim Walls uh, being elected to Congress from how he has uh, and in his winning the governor's race by the margins he has in two elections has shown that he can win. And were you just reading directly from your endorsement right there? I didn't read directly from from my endorsement, but this is the, the truth of the matter is he's a tough candidate to beat. And if you're a, if you're a Democrat across the country, because one of the things that happens when you look at someone like Walls is is who we would argue, I mean, this is someone who was endorsed by the NRA, who was in the first congressional district, um, which is a you know obviously a, a, a conservative part of the state. He was able to win in that because he was able to win over those moderates, win over a lot of Republicans. But in office, he's done nothing to stymie the progressive agenda. And so if you're a progressive Democrat looking across the country, um, in, in some of these instances, if you're looking for a running mate, one of the one of the decisions will be, does that person complement the ticket? Do they have, is it a good contrast? If you're a progressive Democrat in this country and you're looking to show how the progressive message can win in a state. Tim Wallace is an example of that. I'm not saying I agree by any stretch of the imagination of all the things that he's passed and pushed, but he has not stood in the way of a progressive agenda being advanced. And from that standpoint, I think he's incredibly value-added to a national ticket. And last thing I will say on this is I do think, you know, kind of right there, you you made a little bit of my point because I do believe that if we went and uh, talked to some folks down in the 1st Congressional District, there might be a little buyer's remorse because I believe him, Tim Walls as a congressman, was vastly different than the Tim Walls we have right now. I believe that if he was down there talking about giving driver's license to undocumented, if he was down there talking about, um, you know, codifying uh, abortion rights across the board, giving felons the right to vote, um, doing this executive order or supporting that on gender-affirming care. I believe if he was doing that as a candidate on the campaign trail in the first congressional district for Congress, I don't believe he would have been reelected. I think that he has successfully navigated the political landscape. And I think- I would agree. <laughs> and, and very much so. And um, the politics of opportunity, the politics of reality- I'll be very curious to see if a poll comes out that and where the polling shows the governor at. I bet you his approval ratings have gone up. And and, and we didn't even talk about George Floyd riot. So like that's a whole we have a lot of topics to correct. talk about. And I bet you his approval rating has gone up. I think there may be some concerns with some Minnesotans on, on some of the some of the the definition, the scope as to how far they went. But the general trajectory, I, I don't think there's something that he's done this legislative session so far since he was reelected, that is going to bring down his approval ratings. And if he can, if he is someone who can get elected in the first congressional district, being a candidate who can run in the first, being NRA endorsed, and then come to the state capitol, get elected in 18, get elected in 2022, and then sign off on this legislation, mm -hmm. 
and have his poll numbers not go down, that is a politician who has some credibility, has some success, and you're making my point for me <laughs> that Democrats nationally should be looking more at Governor Tim Walz. Last question. One simple yes or no answer is, let's hear, as of March 20th, 2023, is Governor Walls going to run for a third term? Yes or no? I believe he does run for a third term. All right. You're not going to answer? Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't. <laughs> no, that was a question for you. Okay. I mean, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a good conversation and we'll discuss it more. Uh, let's move on. Let's move on to a recent incident. I, it's fair to me describe it as incidents. I don't want to be overly dramatic, but there was an incident last week that caught my attention at the state capitol regarding a bill. And, and we'll break down the subject now about uh, Winona LaDuke testifying at the Minnesota legislature. Yes. So there was a bill up at the state legislature that, um, you know, let's that kind of talks about what we were just talking about, right? So we've talked about with Republican can uh, guests, with Democrat guests, about the speed of the legislature, things being pushed through. And one question that we've posed to guests and, and, and just gotten without even asking about is, are, in particular, Republican guests, are things being missed? Are Republicans being ignored? Are questions being set aside simply to, to get legislation through? Um, there was a hearing specifically recently about allocating dollars um, to, uh, let's say, lift up $100,000 a year, I believe, for the next two years to lift up Winona LaDuke and Honor the Earth, um, who, what uh, organization um, that she is, has, has founded, has been a speaker for, leader on for. On the board of. On the board of. Um, and, you know, they were met with some questions and from the Republican legislators, um, which seemed to really catch some of the Democrats off guard and were very much criticized and ridiculed. And what are your thoughts? Well, it's, it was House File 2091. And the chief author is Representative Alicia Kozlowski. hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm dyslexic and terrible with names. Um, but she has a bill, uh, House File 2091, which would have some funding for a museum, some and some other uh, event, uh, other curated exhibits at a building up in, uh, I think in, in uh, back up in northern Minnesota. The building is owned by uh, an organization connected to Winona LaDuke. Right. And so she was testifying at the legislature. And to to many people, um, Winona LaDuke is somewhat of a polarizing figure. And, and some of the questions uh, was Representative John Heinzman who raised raised some of the questions in the legislature about Winona LaDuke. Winona Duke is uh, um, a member of the uh, White Earth Band of yep. White Earth Band of Ojibwe. She is native. Uh, she is also with Honor of the Earth, as you described. Um, you know, there's been a number of projects in Minnesota that Winona Duke has been opposed to, been aggressive in protesting and opposition to. That conflicts with a number of legislators on both sides of the aisle regarding uh, growth and development and economic opportunity in Minnesota. How we balance. Um, the building of those projects and the development of those projects. But Winona Duke has, has had a number of headlines. And I, it has not been picked up a lot by the mainstream media in the Twin Cities. But there's a number of subjects related to Winona Duke that have raised some concern. She is with Honor the Earth. Honor the Earth is being currently being sued by a former employee uh, who alleges uh, sexual harassment and mistreatment uh, after she raised some concerns uh, about uh, a gentleman who was connected to Honor the Earth, who had, had been involved, uh, some would argue inappropriately, with an underage uh, underage uh, boy. 
Um, and Leduc was commented and, and commented on this and, and in some depositions and said that she wasn't to judge this relationship that occurred between an adult male and a, a 15 year old boy, which you and I, as I think most people would say would constitute rape. Um, because it's, you know, 15 year old kids, you know, can't have consensual relationships with adults. Um, and then over the course of this lawsuit against honor the earth, um, the, the, the a judge made a determination uh, that th they believe that Winona LaDuke and Honor the Earth had, had affirmatively destroyed evidence related to this case. And so this is someone who the Democrats are bringing up to a legislative hearing, met with, I think, completely reasonable, justified questions about the project, where it's going, its funding. There's I think there's still confusion as to where it's funded, where it's going. But it's clear that the Democrats are very used to getting their way at the legislature. Especially right now, right? They're used to being, I, I, I mean, putting this on, uh, you know, I'm going to put my Republican glasses on here. They are used to being able to ram these things through. It seems as though they are not opening things up to as much testimony as they are. They are not opening things to as many questions from Republican legislature, legislators. And so in this situation where they are getting that, um, you know, the, the the response was a little telling. I, I believe even one of the legislators say, um, you as white men are not properly able to question. Um, only Native people can be critical of other Native people. Now, I guess to go up on a high horse real quick, again, I am a white woman. I am well aware of that. However, there are situations when wrong is wrong, alleged sexual allegations um, going on and ties to an individual, I think are wrong. Uh, LaDuke also has, um, you know, as you mentioned, she has been involved in some protests. I believe there was the one with Jane Fonda in the last year or two, um, where a Native-owned construction company saw um, damages to equipment in the tune of tens of thousands of dollars in multiple days, and, and employees were um, not working for days or weeks on end because of the damage. I mean, this is not, it, it, these things have been documented. They're not out there. We're not, you're, they are out there. We're not just making them up. Um, so questions should be valid without being able to say you, because you are white and because you are a male, don't get to ask those questions. Correct. Um, Winona Duke is a very polarizing figure. Uh, and I think that what, what was, what I saw in that committee hearing, which was, which was so frustrating to watch is rational, calm questions, fair questions. Um, that's a fair space. That should be a safe space. If there's if there's a safe space where this type of questions and Q and A gets to get asked, particularly about Winona LaDuke, particularly if we're going to discuss if she's going to come in as a subject matter expert, that's reasonable to do. Um, we're talking about serious allegations. Honor the Earth is facing a civil lawsuit. Um, there is a belief in reviewing the court documents that Winona had a uh, casual. Uh, uh, concern about these allegations. She was quoted in a deposition saying that it wasn't her place to judge. Let me tell you something. Uh, it's absolutely an adult's position to judge uh, a relationship that exists, a sexual relationship that exists between an adult and a child, because that's not a, that's not a relationship. Right. That's rape. Yes. And, and so to think that Winona LaDuke can just freely come to the Capitol, testify at a legislative hearing, and it's inappropriate for Republicans to raise both questions about her protests, her activity, uh, in Minnesota, but then also the legal developments going on with this case, that's fair game. And I think my observation from that was, was that the Democrats are not prepared uh, for, now I, first of all, I would say this, I think there was some, a lot of confusion about this bill, the way it was drafted, the way it was worded. There's questions as to whether Honor the Earth is getting the money directly or mm -hmm. it's being routed to someone else. 
Um, but it's clear that the the DFL process, particularly in the House, is to speed this stuff through, and any type of reasonable questions asked by Republicans is going to be met with resistance. And I think this kind of goes to the conversation we had with Jeff Kolb last week about um, the Honorable Jeff Kolb. when things are surrounding a party or politics or policy that you yourself are in favor of you kind of become blinded, right? I mean, it's a great point. again, now I don't necessarily agree with, I would say, a majority of what Winona LaDuke um, stands for and protests and at, is an activist for. However, if you take everything else aside, sure, she can be lift up as a strong, vocal, great leader activist for the pro-environmentalists, pro-Native groups that she she represents, Right. So again, I think it sometimes comes with blinders, whether they are willing blinders or or ignorant blinders um, for folks that they they just want to stand behind and, and believe. And I think that in this situation, a lot of folks just thought, Winona LaDuke, she's been named woman of the year or top, you know, 40 over 40, whatever it might be of what awards and accolades that she stands for and choose to ignore whatever else might be, you know, Republican fodder. I don't think that the, there's any accomplishment that Winona LaDuke is engaged in. Uh, to being just a fair analysis of her record that would allow her to not be questioned or to think it would be out of line to question her about these current events that are going on. There's a trial coming up next week, March 27th, 9 a.m. in Becker County. The allegations in this civil matter against, it's against honor of the earth. They're troubling allegations. This is not a criminal trial. This is a civil trial, but the allegations are troubling. And I think that this example of what Democrats did on Friday I think the Republican questions were fair. I think the questions from the committee members were fair. And I think that it really showed that Democrats are sensitive to any type of discussion on some of these bills. And it's it's the best in- indication to me so far of this process that the Democrats are moving too fast. Completely agree. This, as we've discussed, is the safe space that we should be able to have these conversations. We're not urging protests. We're not urging outrage. We're encouraging people to ask questions, have full conversations, see all sides of pieces of legislation before they vote on it. I couldn't agree with you more. Let's break down universal lunches, universal meals at schools now. All right, Becky? All right. So there was a bill that passed, House and the Senate signed by the governor, that I think you and I both uh, had some general frustration with some of the messaging about. And it was about using, um, in essence, paying for students to have uh, lunch, uh, breakfast, all students, all schools uh, across the state of Minnesota. And this led to a substantive debate uh, in both the House and the Senate. Um, I think, at least from my perspective, and I'd like to get your take on it, um, from my perspective, I thought that the messaging got somewhat sloppy. I thought and it's consistent with some of the things that we've broken down in the past and some of the things that we've discussed, which is the Republican message, the Republican response, how Republicans are coming across. And there are substantive policy concerns that people can have with every student across the state, regardless of income level, being having an opportunity to have uh, free lunch and uh, free breakfast every day of the week, uh, five days when they're in school. I understand that policy argument. What my frustration is, is Ben, that the Republicans, I think, are so willing to go out and portray themselves in such ghoulish ways on some of these subjects. 
Um, and that's what I'd like to talk about for just a couple of minutes. I know we're going to talk about this more in a, probably in a future episode, but I wanted to get your take on that kind of messaging discussion. Yeah, you know, Republicans are never going to be win over the party of, you know, the compassionate party, right? I mean, we're we're not the ones that are wanting free daycare, paid leave, you know, free all of this stuff. I mean, and now now granted, I think you and I have some some policies of that sort that we are on. We know that Republicans are are compassionate people or can be compassionate people, but um there is a time to figure out if you're going to, what hill you're going to die on, right? And we have a saying, I think a lot of communications professionals have, and, and folks have heard this before, but if you're explaining, you're losing. This bill was always going to pass. This bill did pass. The debates were made on the floor. Um, some poor statements were made, I think, maybe at that time as well. Um, but in this situation, saying, arguing against this policy is simply putting you on the side where you're against children eating. I mean, and it just kind of is is where we where we sit at this, right? There are some, and again, I think we're separating legitimate policy debates versus very poor messaging. And I'll cite one example. Yes. Senator Draskowski went on the floor uh, and talked about this, and he specifically said that he was unaware, basically, of, of didn't have any experience or was questioned whether he had certainly not met any people that had not had food, that were not hungry, um, people that had didn't know anyone who was having a difficulty eating. And, and the reality is, is that uh, that's just simply a, a foolish statement to make. It paints Republicans in a in a box. It puts them. It paints them. They become, a, in essence, a caricature of themselves. When you have that type of that type of sloppy messaging and bracketing and framing of the issues. It allows there to be a perception of what Republicans believe and what they stand for. And when Republicans have don't control the House, the Senate, or have the governor's office, they need to be res they need to be responsible with how they frame up the opposition to what the House DFL, who are in control, the Senate DFL, and the governor are doing. And I think there is a there is a policy debate you can have about whether we should be providing universal breakfast and lunch to kids without simultaneously questioning the existence of whether there's hungry people in this state because no one is going to make that argument. Absolutely. And and like you said, you know, there are certain policy ways to look at this. I'm a consider myself a fiscal conservative. I believe state budget comes from taxpayer dollars and should be, you know, spent in a responsible manner. I mean, we could get into all of that. But I also, I think you and I have both worked for politicians, candidates, electeds, whatever it might be. Um, and whether you want to or not, you can and should talk in sound bites with the assumption of one, it's good for your side to be able to push things out on social media, but with the understanding that the other side is going to take what you want and pull it in sound bites. So context doesn't mean anything. Right. I mean, I've been on the side where I've had uh, previous bosses who have had, you know, said a plethora of things and and somebody pulls one little sentence and sure, quote unquote, it's taken out of context. I think you might understand what I'm saying here. Do, and yeah. But when you explain it, it's just not going to work. Right. It, it There's no explaining because you said those words. So when you have to explain the longer message, it simply just isn't going to work. And this is something not only um, in this situation did Draskowski say that, and it maybe looks poorly on him, 
but it made national news. And this now looks like, you know, they get to effectively lump us as Republicans as a whole in Minnesota. This is this is their mouthpiece, right? And that's the challenge is that when you when we have Republicans going up to microphones with and making such uh, unthoughtful, uh, inarticulate statements, uh, it, it in essence paints every all the Republicans in this state with that same brush. And as a, a political party that needs to grow and develop, uh, a, a political party that needs to learn how to, to message responsibly uh, and build a, and have a base and a footprint all across the state, Senator Draskowski's fun little comment that he makes where he you know probably practiced that and, and thought it was going to be fun to do becomes a national story and it makes all Republicans in this state look bad. It's just unfortunate. And I think our point as we close out this segment is we would like to see Republicans be more thoughtful and responsible in their messaging. And this is just another example of it. Absolutely. And when you're explaining you're losing, it's never going to get you anywhere and just got to be mindful of that. All right. And we'll go back to some of those other examples you were talking about at a later point, I think. <laughs> Sounds great. Excited to be joined by uh, State Senator Karen Housley, who's from Stillwater and represents uh, Senate District 33 in the Minnesota Senate. Senator Housley is serving her fourth term uh, in the Minnesota Senate and is currently an assistant minority leader. She is also uh, the Republican lead in the Capital Investment, which is the bonding committee at the state capitol. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me, you guys. It's good to good to hear your voices again. It's great to hear yours. Um, give us your take. You're you're at the, almost the halfway point, if not the halfway point, of the legislative session. How do you think things are going uh, this this session? And and also, there's been some activity and excitement in the normally very sleepy Capital Investment Committee. Uh, can you give some perspective on what's been going on there? I can. Um, yeah, this is being my 11th year here. I have never, ever, ever experienced anything like this. It is going so fast. Um, every day, it's a new big bill coming before your committee. Uh, not a lot of vetting of these big, big bills, and they just keep moving, moving, moving. Um, it is fast. And and even even when you have lobbyists come and sit down with you, and they've been here, the one who just left a little bit ago has been working at the Capitol for 31 years, has never seen anything like this before. Um, and I know sometimes the Democrats say, well, that was you know, six years of being pent up where the where the Senate had the GOP majority. But I mean, come on, you had it for a billion years before that. So it seems like it seems like they're taking every idea that was in the trash can from the last 20 years and they're pulling it all up and just cramming it through. So it's just it's not always fun every day. And I hate to complain, but, you know, it's you go to work every single day and you just keep losing. Losing, losing, losing every single battle, 34, 33, 34, 33. So um it hasn't it hasn't been a lot of fun trying to trying to get some bipartisan um bills passed, trying to get them to listen to us, trying to get um some of the $18 billion surplus given back to the people of Minnesota, because that's what we all campaigned on. Um, but not having a lot of luck with that right now, and that probably parlays into the bonding bill. Um what ha now explain, explain to some of the listeners there, Republicans, um, explain a little bit of the significance. Republicans, the Democrats have a one seat majority in the Minnesota Senate. But when it comes, so that means they can pass everything with that one seat majority, except when it comes to bonding. Can you talk a little bit and explain the significance 
of the math that comes into play when it comes to a bonding bill, kind of what is a bonding bill and, and what happened recently with Senate Republicans and Senate Democrats? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Michael. We haven't had a bonding bill in the state of Minnesota for the last two years, but we had one almost every year leading up to that. And so that's a, a, a borrowing bill. And, and usually the projects that go into that big borrowing bill are infrastructure projects, roads and bridges, um, things that are a really big need for across the state. So, and those, those bills have to originate in the House, and then they send them over here to the Senate, and they need 41 votes in the Senate to get, that's the majority, it's the only bill, the only bill per our Constitution that they have to get two-thirds majority in order to pass the bonding bill. So right now with an $18 billion surplus, um, the House wanted to pass the bill that they had last year. Um, that actually never passed the House. It was never even heard in the Senate. We never even saw it. So they were trying to cram this bill back from last year. Well, the whole makeup of the legislature has changed. There are so many new members that are still trying to get to know, what one, what a bonding bill is, what projects in their district need to be in there, Highway 14 or Highway 55 or um, getting to know all of that. But they wanted to really cram this bonding bill through quickly. Uh, by the, they first said February 6th. And I was like, there's no way we can get it done by February 16th, 6th. People are still trying to find the bathrooms at the Capitol by February 6th. <laughs> um, so there was some frustration on the part of the Democrats when I said, slow down. Governor Wallace called me, said there wasn't a hurry. Commissioner Showalter of MMB said the projects aren't going to increase anymore in terms of inflation between now and May, which for, for listeners out there, bonding bills are usually the last bill of session to get passed. End of May, last bill to get passed, because again, that's the one where you absolutely have to work together. Um, so got a little frustrated, the Democrats did, because I said, slow down. Um, and all of our members in the Republican Senate said, slow down. We're still trying to get a grip on things. And we want some tax relief. $17 billion surplus. Why are we going to borrow another $2 billion? Give some of that money back to the people. One place where they could give it back, um, and not just Republicans campaigned on this, Democrats too. Uh, we are one of 11 states that still taxes our Social Security benefits. One of 11. So our senior citizens, and we get, I get senior citizens in my office all the time telling me that they can't afford their rent, they can't afford food. And I'm like, well, could you use the extra money in your pocket from your Social Security benefits? Absolutely. That'd be a godsend. Why don't we do that? Well, try to try to make that deal with the Democrats, give us full exemption of Social Security, and then maybe we could vote for a bonding bill. And they wanted no part of that. I told them we had no votes. There were no Senate Republican votes for the bonding bill. Don't bring it to the floor because it's not going to pass. And they brought it to the floor and they did not get one Republican vote. And Senator Sandy Pappas, the chair of the Capital Investment Bonding Committee, was extremely, extremely upset. What was the reaction? <laughs> define, define that she was upset. Well, oh, it's just, it's, and you know, and I hate to, I really don't like talking about how the sausage is made here, but when you get shut out of certain things, and, and when you have one party control, the governor, House, and Senate, they can shut you out. So the next day, we have a, a capital investment committee where we're going to talk about the bonding bill. And there were, I think there was 15 Democrat bills on the agenda and four Republican bills. And one hour before committee, Chair Pappas pulled all four Republican bills from the committee 
and was not going to hear them. She's not going to hear any Republican bills. We had people driving in to testify from Fergus Falls. It was a snowy day. They almost get to the Capitol and get the call to say, you're not on the agenda anymore. Don't come in to testify. So Democrats have to understand that they only won the majority in the Senate by one seat, and that one seat was by 170 votes. So by cutting off any Republican projects, you're ignoring half of the state. So we put up a stink that day, and I think the video is out there somewhere, because it was really very, very partisan. Uh, and so she's continued to do that. Yesterday in the um, Capital Investment Committee, we heard only Democrat bills, 42 of them, 42 Democrat bills. Uh, and mind you, these bills are not about roads and bridges or buildings. They are nonprofits in Minneapolis and St. Paul coming and asking for money to build a community center in, in downtown Minneapolis. They are not huge needs. And, and you guys know that that's really what you put in the, in the bonding bill is things that are really, really needed. Uh, it's the only thing you really should go out and borrow money for. So that's what we get to hear in the Capital Investment Committee right now. Our long list, 42 bills yesterday. We have 47 on the agenda tomorrow, all Democrat bills. And she said she's not going to hear uh, a Republican bill. So it's kind of sad. Now, do you expect, I mean, is this going to change? At, at some point, if they want a bill to get passed, right, they need they need some Republicans to come over. So are they going to continue to block you out into the last possible minute and then try to do some negotiating? Or or is this going to be no bonding bill come through because they're being, you know, so stringent and, and you know, blocking you out here? I think, um, I really do think there will be a bonding bill because um, when they came out yesterday with their budget targets, of the $18 billion surplus, they're spending every penny of it. Every single penny is gone. So they're going to, they're going to, if they want to get these projects done, they're going to need to get our votes and, and we'll have to have a bonding bill. Um, they're threatening to do an all cash bill, a $2.2 billion all cash bill, but I, I just don't see it happening when we see the, uh, the amount of money that's passing through these committees that committees that they planned on plan on spending. Um, I don't see it. So, and, and believe me, we want to get one done. We really do want to mm -hmm. get one done too. And we said, if you give us tax relief, you know, we'll vote for it tomorrow. But people want, people want some of that back instead of, could you imagine in your own house, if you've got a hundred thousand uh, dollar cash in the bank, and then you want to go borrow, you know, another 40,000 just because you can. No, it's not how you have a responsible budget. And I know that, you know, like you said, we don't always like to talk about how the sausage is made, but this is something that we are trying to do a little bit is kind of break down these situations and give a little behind the scenes for, for some folks. So um, in this situation, you know, obviously you mentioned Sandy Pappas, Senator Pappas is the chair. Do you think this is, is, is she upset in general because this was, you know, her bringing it to the floor and it, and it failed? Or is this coming from, you know, leadership and the governor themselves that they are, are axing and, and blocking Republicans at this point. Um, and that's what I asked in committee yesterday. Have you, I asked Senator Pappas if this is coming from her or is this coming from leadership? Like what, what is this push? Do, do your members even know what's going on over here? Or is this just all Senator Pappas? And I, I didn't get a real clear answer on that. So I am not sure. And when she keeps coming back at me and saying, you know, get your members to vote for this bill, that, that does go to the next level, level when, again, you just have the one bill that 
they need our input on. This is the only bill all session long they need us for. Come, I mean, across both both uh, chambers, this is the only bill they need us on. What is? And can you define a little bit what you would want in order for there to be a bonding bill? You mentioned some some tax some tax cuts, but get, be offers a little bit more specifics. What exactly would it need for for Senate Republicans to produce the necessary votes for there to be a bonding bill? What's the policy that you guys want to see enacted? Well, and that's kind of what we wanted to have those discussions with them. I know Senator French said on the floor today that we could have had in the budgets that that just came out the targets that they would have put more in tax relief if we would have voted for the bonding bill. And it was like, well, that's what we've been saying from the get-go. Like, let's sit down at the table and negotiate what we can get in in tax relief for Minnesotans. Is that full exemption of Social Security? Is it a, a, a tax reform in other areas? Like, what is it exactly that you'll let us have? You know, make us an offer. Just give us some tax relief instead of holding the bonding bill hostage. Uh, we had um, we interviewed um, a couple weeks ago. We interviewed uh, Senator Aramay Quaid, and, and she offered, uh, from her perspective, a, a bit of a rosy scenario, a positive scenario about the the bipartisan work that's going on at the legislature. From your perspective, do you see that, uh, or is it much more? I mean, you cited this example with the bonding bill and, and a few other things, but do you see a lot of bipartisan collaboration going on at the Capitol right now? You know, maybe on some of the smaller bills that that uh, you know don't cost a lot of money. I know, like the school lunch one, there is some bipartisan work done on that one, um, but it it doesn't really feel like that because it is it, it, they're going to do whatever they want with or without our input. And I'm going to tell you, this is this is kind of been frustrating in committee too. Um, they're limit they're limiting. Um, testimony like tomorrow in the jobs committee um they've we've got paid family leave up and there can be no testifiers and we're like wait what this is a, a 668 million dollar bill and we can't have any testifiers here uh so no it, it doesn't really feel like there's any working across the aisle it doesn't mean i don't like them senator pappas and i actually text about other things besides this um and i they have so many wonderful people over there but it's kind of it's kind of taken on this whole bully attitude. It's our way or the highway, or either with us or without us. And not just with us legislators. I've heard it from other people around the state that are afraid to speak up. A um, couple of the bills that I don't want to say which group they are, but big ones that have just recently passed, that the advocates aren't even speaking up because they're afraid to be re that they might be retaliated against and not get any funding. So it's a, it's a bully mentality here right now. I'm really not a fun guest, am I? <laughs> no, this, hey, you're, this is, this is reality. I mean, we know this is what happens when, when, you know, unfortunately in November, Republicans were not successful and uh, that puts us in the minority. I think a lot of, I think, I know Michael and I were very surprised. I'm sure you and, and, you know, your colleagues were, were surprised about that as well. And unfortunately that puts us in a situation that isn't always, you know, rose rainbows and sunshine, right? No. Yep. Uh, I think they were even surprised. I, I did go to lunch with, with Senator Pappas and she said they were, they were very surprised too. So it's just, that's politics, right? Do you think that the, 
what do you think is causing the speed? I mean, what, what's the what's the policy reason, or what's the the tactical reason, I should say, for the moving with such speed? Is it is is one of the things that Becky and I have discussed on a on a previous episode is is that they're moving some of the some of these items in such a quick way to to put as much time as they can between themselves and the election. Um, uh, I don't know if that's makes sense to you, but I'd be curious if you uh, can assign. Because in your experience, things are moving very quickly. If you can assign some bit of tactic or strategy as to why they're moving with such speed. That's that's absolutely what the tactic is, is try even with the bonding bill, try to get that thing out the door as quickly as possible. Put as much time between now and when the House uh, election is next November. So th- they just they don't want those vulnerable members to have that bad vote right before the or in the session right before the election. So they're they're going to desperately try to save the House. And we're going to desperately try to keep that message out there. Like, look at what they've done. Look at how your life has gotten that much harder, that much more expensive. Your taxes have gone up. You have less money in your pocketbook. Uh, and, and and they'll probably still be taxing Social Security. So the poli- so so when Democrats go out there and say, this is that we're we're working in a in a collaborative way with the House and the Senate. They're working in a collaborative in a leadership capacity, and all this progress that's being done. What you're what you're saying is that it's 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 there's a political agenda behind that, and that is to put as much distance as possible between some of these policy items that may not be as popular to give there be as much time before folks are up for reelection. To give is it to give people to give Minnesotans an opportunity to forget some of this stuff, or well, and and that's what they think, but I think it could end up backfiring on them because something like paid family leave, once people really figure out how it affects them, it's not just it's not just business owners, it's your school districts, it's your your counties, it's your um um cities. It's all of those it's going to affect and all of a sudden they're going to be like, "Oh, wait a second. So I think it's going to backfire, uh, but that's what I think their plan is right now and their tactic is try to put as much time between the vote and the next election. But once these policies are implemented, people will figure it out. So that actually brings up a, a good question um, to kind of shift topics a little bit. Um, Michael and I talk a lot about um, messaging and in particular Republican messaging. And obviously, you know, we saw some failures with that, not only in Minnesota, but across the country um, last November. And so it's clear we need to do things a little bit different. You yourself have um, been a statewide candidate. You've run for U.S. Senate. You've been a lieutenant governor candidate. You understand messaging and, and what goes into talking of folks across the state, um, the suburbs being, you know, really crucial. What do you think it's going to take? Are Republicans, do you think we have the capacity and and kind of wherewithal right now to be able to pivot next year to to remind folks of these things, to to bring up some of these issues that might not be at the forefront of voters' minds um, when they are looking at going to vote in 2024? I think, and that one's always so hard because you've got your Republican base that you you have to message to and you have to get endorsed by and, you know, they're God, guns, and babies. And so they want you speaking that message. And then out in my district, that's not the message that I need to be talking about. I think if we want to win statewide, we have to be talking about um, how much we actually care about Minnesotans. The average person doesn't want to hear tax relief every single day. I know, and I always have to check in with my kids because they're now 36, 33, 31, and, and 26. Just, they pay no attention to what happens down here at the Capitol. But I, I 
do know that they're they're mad that the price of eggs have has gone up, that the price of everything has gone up, that she can't afford her daycare anymore. So we have to be talking about the things that are really, really hitting people instead of always talking about what our Republican base wants. And I know our Republican base doesn't like to hear that. I barely got endorsed myself because there was a challenge from the far right. And I think I do a darn good job for my my district. Um, and so I think we, we need to, we don't always have to vote towards the middle, but our messaging has to be to the middle. And it has to be a, a much more caring message uh, than what I think we've been doing. <laughs> Go ahead, Becky. Oh, I was just going to say we we were just talking about um, about that in particular about the free lunches that just were passed and how um, you know Republicans were were never going to be the most compassionate party. So we do, like you said, have to find ways to talk about things. We can talk about inflation and economy and fiscal responsibility in ways you just talked about by talking about eggs and grocery shopping and you know childcare in ways that actually matters and 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 families and parents and and students or teachers or whoever it might be understand. And so I, I really appreciate you you saying that and, and understanding that that is, you know, really what's going to hopefully break through. And I think too, we just, and this is the, this was the saddest thing of this last election. Um, we lost so many good women. Um, we just have three Republican women in the Senate and you all know it's, it's suburban women who can make or break an election. But when you only have three of us, it's really hard to even attract people to the Republican Party when there's only three of us uh, that can get out there and get that message or influence what the messaging is going to be. Um, that's always that's always a tough one when you're like, wait a second, do you want to know what my suburban mom thinks? But they don't always want to know what the suburban mom thinks. But that's how we win elections is by making sure the suburban mom knows we care about them. Why do you think it is that Republicans have had such a struggle with female voters over the last couple election cycles? Um, it was very indicative in the governor's race uh, and the other race and some of the down ballot races about women. Why do you think Republicans uh, are having male Republican candidates uh, most of the time are having such a trouble connecting with female voters in a responsible way? Because I, I really do believe our message is, is I don't want to say extreme, but it is is too far to the right. Our intentions are good and they make sense. But like Becky said, we've got to flip it to the cost of eggs and gas and childcare and giving our kids a good education instead of the, you know, we want tax cuts because they just hear, you know, they're going to give tax breaks to the rich because the left is so good at, at pummeling that. So we just, we just have to get a, a message that's softer and, and, um, because most of these women are right in the middle. They're actually not even political, but they vote. Like they don't pay attention. Um, so just get a message to them that's really going to hit inside their house. And and we sometimes we overthink it and overcomplicate it, and we speak the language that they speak down here at the Capitol instead of what they're speaking in the cul-de-sac. Absolutely. I think that's incredibly spot on. I always, uh, mom, I know you listen, so hopefully a little shout out here, but I always like to, you know, discuss that that's who I think we need to be talking to are, are folks like my mom. She doesn't necessarily watch Fox News or CNN or read Star Tribune and Pioneer Press every weekend, but she reads the Anoka County Union. She watches KSDP. She understands what's going on. And it's those sound bites that we need to talk in. It's that messaging that we need to get out there right here in our communities. Um, and really talk to the individuals instead of talking and 
and trying to fight and sling mud and and do all of those things that, um, you know, we lose some of those folks sometimes who just want to know, you know, how their grandkids are, you know, school is going to go and and how, you know, the roads are going to get fixed that, you know, to make sure that they can still go on family vacations. And I think also, and we sort of, uh, we sort of lose sight of, we, we're always focused on the big picture for everybody in the whole state, but how I do it in my community is really talk local stuff. Um, I did the Matamidi City Council meeting last night and they wanted to know about the Lake Links Trail. Like that's a really big deal for them there. And so like talk about those things. It's not always sexy down here at the Capitol to talk about that, but when you're in those districts, talk about what really is is important to those people in in their backyard. So we don't always do that, and I think we need to do more of it. Well, Senator, I want to th- want to thank you for joining us today. You've been incredibly generous with your time. Where can people follow you on social media so they can get your updates? Oh, awesome! So it's Facebook, it's Senator Karen Housley. Just find that, and then on Twitter, it's at Karen Housley. Instagram Wonderful. at Karen Housley. And uh, just just to make sure everybody is aware, Karin is K-A-R-I-N, and your last name is H-O-U-S-L-E-Y, correct? Yep, yep. And if you just Google right. it, you can get my um, email information and my phone number here at the Capitol if you want to come down for a visit. And I, I've got one last question before yep. we sign off here. We talk a lot about the need for good, smart advocates, um, good candidate recruitment here. I'm going to put you on the spot. Are we going to see a Karen Housley on a statewide ballot ever again? Oh, oh Becky, you are good. You know, right now, <laughs> I'm just going to focus on getting a bonding bill done. I that's, love it. That's my, that's my perfect right answer. Now. <laughs> that was good. I had to ask, right? Yeah, you had to ask. Stay tuned. <laughs> All right. Thanks, you guys. Senator, thank you. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope it wasn't too bad, and I hope you'll maybe join us again. Absolutely. You guys are fun. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Well, that was great. It's amazing how much she's talked about that, like, goes back to what we've talked about. I mean, the messaging, the suburban moms, the stories. I mean, that was spot on. I That was just great. Seems- she just seems to get it. And yeah. and I was disappointed a little bit in hearing, as I knew this, that she'd had some endorsement troubles. Uh, and it's just so surprising because mm-hmm. she just is so normal. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I I hate to imply, um, you know, I, I'd say this, something. I mean, all of the legislators that we've had on have been incredibly normal. They're just, mm-hmm. I think, average uh, people doing things we can disagree about their politics, but one of the things that rep- I don't, I think that Republicans were missing out a little bit on is is just that that connection. The interview with Senator Mary Quaid, which is fantastic, uh, I thought that she was engaging, and you can see how she can do very well uh, being a successful candidate. And, but it's nice because we are both Republicans. Uh, you certainly more than, than than I am these days. It's nice to see someone on our side of the aisle have that same level of charisma and engagement uh, and and to see that this is someone who could just do a fantastic job job someday as a statewide candidate in in the right opportunity and 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 God bless you for bringing up the question yeah, no I mean she's a great messenger she is a great um, person to have out she just is really understands the issues understands the families understands who we are what we need to talk to and even how she said you know 
Republican, you know, activists don't always like it, but you you sometimes need to to talk a little bit even different than you think or vote. And 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 that's I think what we've talked about now for what 22 episodes is we're not saying that you have to moderate and and pass legislation and do all of this stuff. It's how you're speaking to the voter that that's what needs to we need to focus on and we need to change things. You're absolutely right. Well, this has been another good episode. We have to of course end with the tweet of the week. And uh, just to get, I want to continue the, the 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 expectation. Do I need to get tissues out, or is this gonna? Is... Well, you do not. However, I don't necessarily have a tweet of the week, week but I have an Instagram of the week. So that's, I'm, that's I'm, even better. That I mean, I'm that's even better, Brand. That's even yeah. better. Go ahead with yours. All right. So mine is actually from the wonderful Star Tribune um, on Instagram. Mm-hmm. They posted the other day. Minnesotans are in luck. In case of a zombie apocalypse, Mall of America is a good place to hide. Bloomington's massive mall has been named the fourth best mall in the country to hide out in, according to an evaluation from the website Jeb- JeffBet, a sports betting platform. Um, the mall's size, in the largest, it's the largest in America, gave it a leg up on competition, but it's a mix of stores helped push it to the near top 20 malls considered. Hockey sticks from Hockey Minnesota, knives from Carl's Fishing could be used as weapons to protect against the undead. What do you think? Where would you go first if zombies were attack or attacking? I thought it well, was I, a pretty, you know, hey, Mall of America might have to be it. Holy buckets. My kids are going to be so excited. They're, they, would, I mean, if the zombie apocalypse comes, I'm going right to the Mall of America now. That's you got fantastic. food, you got weapons, you got clothes, you got sporting goods, you got sleeping bags. That's fantastic. That's, 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 that's better than, I mean, that's, Great work on your part. Great work on your part. <laughs> um, uh, my tweet, of the, my tweet of the week is is Dan Walter. He's at at DJ Walter on Twitter, and he said, "Finally, listen to at JP Kolb on the BB Break Pod with Allery." And this is what's funny: he refers to me as Arnie Broadcorp. Um, Love it, and, and and that's a respectful. I think I think he's showing respect in some way uh, of of connecting me to former Governor Arnie Carlson, who was elected two terms of, as governor uh, and is recognized as being somewhat of a moderate governor. And that's apparently my new moniker. I, I'll uh, take it. Arnie, I like it. Arnie Broadcorp and 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 Dan went on to say, and I have to say, Kolb is an articulate advocate for sensibility and for for sense for sensible. And sense for the sensible and sensibility. A little bit of confusion there on my part. This is in reference to our our last episode, which I just have to say once again, I thought was a fantastic conversation we had with Jeff Cole. We did something unique. We had him in studio. Um, he was with us for all the subjects, and we broke down um, you know threats, recent threats against politicians, some discussion on Fox News and daylight savings, and it was a really good conversation. Which is, I also say this. From a download perspective, from a stats perspective, it's one of our, if not one of our best episodes. It's also the episode I spoke the least in. Whoa. Well, here, let's not get Jeff a, a big head thinking that he's, you know, going to launch us into into the You spoke more than I did. I spoke the least. So that's good. So, well, that's good. No, it, was, well, it was great. We had a good time. Well, good. And, and we want to thank everyone for listening to uh, The Breakdown with Broadcore Rebecca. Before we go... 
We'd ask that you show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the platform where you listen. You can also review on, give us a review on our website at bbbreakpod.com. That's bbbreakpod.com. We're also at Twitter at bbbreakpod uh, on Twitter. That's at bbbreakpod. And so uh, another another great episode. We'll be back again next week. Becky, I want to thank you for joining once again. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. All right. We'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.